Hi, I'm Natalie Gawkner. This is Both Sides of the Aisle, and I represent the political center and have on the political right, John Dougal. Hey, great to be back. Great to see you, John. And also in the studio with us, uh, Shereen Gorbani on the left. Hello. Hey, listeners. Happy New Year. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, Shereen, did you notice John's been making some news lately? I did notice. (laughs) John, do you want to tell us what you've been up to? (laughs) Uh, well, you know, there was Christmas in there. There was New Year. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, actually, uh, about a week ago, I announced I was not running for re-election. Some people were a shocked. A state auditor. A yeah. state auditor. People were shocked by that. And and what I told him is, when I ran in 2012 for state auditor, I was running against a 17-year incumbent who was looking for four more years. And I talked about that was too long. And people asked how long I thought a state auditor should serve. And I said two to three terms. And so I'm currently in the tail end of my third term. And uh, you know, I thought it was important. I believe in term limits, mm-hmm. even if they're self-imposed. And mm-hmm. so so then I wanted to make sure it was very public. So anybody that wanted to run for it knew that I was not running for re-election and, you know, they could consider it. Um, and then on Monday, I announced I was going to run for the third congressional district. Wow. This yeah. is uh, this is you've you've been in those shoes before. I've been down Shereen. this road. Yeah, she, she's right now questioning my you know sanity. I am. Um, I you know I don't think that's necessarily your fault. Um, <laughs> there's a a broader system that I think makes it a particularly brutal um, seat. Right, the every two years function of it. I think, of course, an open seat means there's a lot of people that have jumped into the race as well. And I also feel like there's um, I don't know there there are just so many. When I think about the experience that I went through running in the second district, I wouldn't change it for a minute. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. I think the opportunity to stand on doors from places like Big Water to uh, Farmington, right, to the middle of the heart of Salt Lake City was wonderful. But I feel like all of that kind of comes together in this really challenging role where you're trying to balance interests across a massive diversity across the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hard. Well, well, and one of the key dynamics that you guys know, first and foremost, I'm, I'm a fiscal conservative. So I'm concerned when I look at the debt. I'm very concerned about the future of America. We just uh, hit $34 trillion in debt. Um, I described to folks to help them understand the minimum credit card payment, if you will, think about your family budget. Just making the minimum credit card payment is kind of the equivalent of more than your mortgage. We're going to be paying more to service the debt in a couple of years than we're paying for national defense. It's just out of control. I don't see folks really taking it seriously. We keep doing these continual resolutions, other things like that and, and stuff. And so that's what I'm going to focus on is, is trying to help folks understand the concerns with running down this path and how it's going to weaken our economy and weaken our society. Shereen, if I know John, he'll be quite uh, successful at acquitting his case on that point. Right. On that point, so congratulations, John. That's cool. We'll um, we'll keep learning from you, and of course, uh, there'll be uh, more time to talk about who the candidates are for auditor and who the other candidates are for the for the third congressional district. We do have uh, Shereen, a president who's uh, trying to claim uh, presidential immunity in all of the charges tied to the 2020 election. Uh, this is going to loom large in the next week or so as, as we hear the news coming down from this. Is it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what you're thinking. Well, the reason I ask is because it does seem like uh, Donald Trump, you know, former President Trump is uh, still leading 
in all of the polls and in for for the Republican, mm-hmm. you know, caucuses and uh, that are underway starting next week. And I guess, uh, you know, when you say that it's going to loom large, I I think for whom? Right. Like, I think for people who are sort of uh, mainstream Republicans, certainly independents who care about democracy. Um, but I have to say, I took note of President Biden's speech last week um, on the anniversary of January 6th, where he said Trump is trying to steal history in the same way he tried to steal the election. I think he's trying to absolutely obliterate from our collective memories what a horrific incident that was Mm -hmm. led by his rhetoric. Um, And that is aside from a whole litany of Mm -hmm. felony charges, right? Uh, 91, I believe, that we're talking about. And just to try to erase that, I think, is going to be the name of the game for Trump going forward. Unfortunately, it seems to be working for a number of his supporters. Yeah. John, did you see the video, uh, God Made Trump, that went out on Truth Social? I did not see that. You know, this is... Uh, I've been was, a little busy. Have you been busy? It was shared by the former president. It, it had uh, these um, sort of inferences that Trump cares for his flock. Of course, you know, the Good Shepherd. I mean, some really interesting kind of parallels to what he was trying to make there. I thought it was interesting, though, that the Iowa pastors basically called that for what it is. And so much of the time we see in the, you know, sort of extreme religious movements that they don't see this, but they are. They are. I think this is really going to hurt him in Iowa. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to what Shireen was talking about, about immunity, and just highlight kind of the dynamic that's there. For presidents, we don't want them to worry if they make a mistake in their official capacity. And so they have immunity within what we call their their outer sphere of their their influence as president. If it's outside that, they don't have immunity. And so this will be the debate, which is, are these kind of events within his official capacity or outside his official capacity and whether or not immunity exists for that? Yeah. Well, we're going to have an interesting few weeks, no no doubt. And when I say weeks, I'm meaning stretching all the way into March, you know, as we kind of, yeah, as we go through it. The Iowa caucus coming up in just a few days. Yeah. Did you watch any of the town halls recently? I, I saw both. I saw the one with uh, DeSantis and with Nikki Haley on CNN. They were pretty interesting. DeSantis was the best I'd ever seen him. Really? How, how so? You know, so many times he seems awkward, you know, and, and it, I hate to say Uncomfortable. that. Uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. And, and just, I'll use the word kind of squirrely a little bit. And it's interesting that we want, we want our presidents to project... Um, What's the right word, Shereen? Confidence, um, warmth, magnanimous. Um, well, and I also want them to be almost princely. I want them to yeah. be, you know, the royalty of our country. I don't mean that in like a royalty sense, but I want You're them to— You're not interested in a king, you mean. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but, I, crown, I, but I mean US in the version. sense that I want him to be a special, special leader and talent. And anyway, he's kind of seemed to fall short of that. Yes. But he did a great job. He, was, he, he you know, pointed—I mean, I, I said to my husband, I said, yeah, I, I like this guy. So— Interesting. Yeah, stay tuned. Well, things are getting really tight for him, so he's got to really be showing it or he's... It's do or die. Yeah, it's do or die. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Um, Did you guys see that there's uh, minimum wage increases in 22 states? Sure did. Is Utah one of them? I thought... thought No, it's not. I thought Shireen might want to ask me about that. those pizza drivers losing their jobs in California? (laughs) Well, so we have, I think... um, to me, this is tied to the housing crisis that we've talked about so many times. We know that most people, uh, working people, if you are working and in 
getting paid minimum wage in this country, you cannot afford a one-bedroom apartment in most cities across this country. So I think that there is a balancing that needs to happen. I think we would have disagreements on the policy mechanisms that mm -hmm. we have to get there. But when we think about everyday Americans going to work and getting paid seven twenty-five an hour, I think many of us would agree that that is not that is not reasonable mm -hmm. in this in the richest country on earth at this moment. So I don't know what the correct minimum wage is. Certainly, I think. It should be driven by, you know, economies mm -hmm. of, of, that people are living in. But I also know that when we have those numbers set by the federal government, that that is a fallback and that there are many people, unfortunately, who continue to work at those wages. It is unsustainable. Yeah. John, I think I know how you're going to come down on this. How am I going to come down? Well, I mean, do you think Utah should raise its minimum wage? It's uh, seven twenty-five an hour. It's pegged to the national rate. It hasn't been raised since, I think, like 2009. And actually also cities or municipalities are stripped of the right to do anything else right. because of the right. uh, gentle <laughs> desire to not have government overreach, which is government overreach from our legislature. So the problem with the minimum wage is it guarantees some people will not have a job. Mm -hmm. Some people who do not hit that minimum level of value add are designated to be unemployed and will not have that. And so that's my concern with the minimum wage is you are essentially consigning some folks to be unemployable. Yeah. And stuff. And so that's that's a concern. I, I mean, I want the market to work. And so, you know, you've got employees and employers trying to figure out what is the appropriate amount of of, of wage and other things like that. I mean, I, I recognize what Shireen's saying. Yeah, you can't you can't survive on 725. No. But then again, you look at those that are trying to start an employment. They may not be worth 725. And so therefore, mm, they're unemployed. Interesting. You know, last time I looked at it, it was less than three percent of our jobs were paying minimum wage. I think it's even smaller than that now. Mm hmm. Um, that tells you the prevailing wage is much, much, much higher. higher. Yeah. And that's just something for our listeners to know. Uh, I'm of the, you know, economic camp that says that when you, that labor is a commodity just like anything else, and if you raise the price of it, you get less of it. Meaning you raise the minimum wage, you'll get less employment. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad Utah's not one of the states that's raising it. Well, I mean, I just threw in really quick, but in California, uh, pizza delivery drivers and other folks like that are losing their jobs. Because I, my understanding is they were raising the minimum wage to 20 bucks an hour. And that wasn't worth it for delivering pizzas. And therefore, these companies are saying, we can't, we can't pay those drivers. So yeah. instead of those drivers seeing a wage increase, boom, they're now looking for a new job. Okay. Well, I would really like to break that down, though, and understand, are we talking about companies like small businesses? Are we talking about companies like Domino's that are, frankly, printing cash? <laughs> I mean, they're making money, right? So I think there has to be a greater balancing here. And I do think it's... I mean, it's hard for me to really think about workers that don't have value beyond $7.25 an hour genuinely, right? When we think about the mm -hmm. amount of work that needs to be done in this country, frankly, the lack of workers that we have to fill the critical jobs that we have here open in Utah, I think there's a rebalancing that needs to happen here. And again, like I said, I don't know exactly what the correct policy mandate is here. But what I would say is I think it's inhumane to pay people $7 an hour for work. Yeah. Yeah. Staying with an economic issue, I'm going to go to you first on this, John, but... Uh, uh, Governor Cox is making some news this week. Uh, he's talking about his that we should have a conversation about getting rid of the individual income tax in our state. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that's coming from. That surprised me. This felt like typical executive branch, legislative branch jockeying, where uh, one uh, says we're going to governor's gonna... office. Okay, governor's office. <laughs> he always does that to me. Sure, yeah. I'm part of the executive. Branch. <laughs> All right, but where the where the governor's office is essentially saying. You know, we'll lower taxes this much. And then the legislative branch says, well, we'll lower it even more. And then the right. governor's office says, well, then I'll, I'll say, let's talk about getting rid of the uh, individual income tax. It, 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 feels, um, it feels like an arms race a little bit 
for tax cuts? Uh, it, it probably isn't. I think that's a good thing. There should be debate about that. Um, some people will come out about the mythical three-legged stool. Mm-hmm. And Natalie, as you know, I don't believe uh, that we really have a three-legged stool. Most governmental entities are funded by one or two legs of taxes, meaning they're funded by either sales tax or income tax or property tax. Rarely, They're never funded by all three mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, those being a, a, a consumption and income and a, a value tax. Can basically. I just give our listeners just a little bit there? Shereen, yeah. maybe you'll like this, but yeah, we talk about a three-legged stool, sales, income, property. Yep. They each bring something different to the table, uh, different levels of stability, uh, different levels of responsiveness, like to growth or to recession. And they respond to your ability to pay. So the income tax is much more progressive than other taxes. So the rich pay a higher percentage of their income in income tax. So this is what John's referring to. Sales tax is more regressive. Uh Poor pay a greater percentage. And and so in, in public finance parlance, it represents this balance. And John's saying, I don't believe that balance because no one entity gets all three. I think as a system, it's a great system to have that balance. So so the governor's saying he's going to have a two-legged stool. Try that. (laughs) Try that one. (laughs) It's not my favorite kind. But but this is one of of the other things that comes into play, though, is is capital goes where it's appreciated and rewarded, and it flees where it's punished. And if you look in a world of tax competition, you have to have a discussion about that. Mm -hmm. I think you also have to have a discussion about property tax. People get concerned that they don't actually ever own their home and stuff, and so we clearly have to have a discussion. But if everybody piles everything on the sales tax, there's clearly problems with just that kind of notion. Mm-hmm. So we would not be the only state that has done this. There are mm-hmm. others, including, is Wyoming one? Wyoming has no income tax. Nevada doesn't have any yeah, income tax. Yeah, so we wouldn't be alone in the West. And I think, I guess when I think about it, the question that I have is looking kind of comprehensively, where are the dollars that are coming and going to? Is it a good investment in terms of where we're taking care of? I hear you talk about this, Natalie, often. Are we taking care of the infrastructure needs, the growth that's coming sure. and already here, frankly? Do we have the capacity to do that while eliminating this? If it, if so, I'm curious about what that broader picture is. Yeah. What I fear, I mean, when you mention uh, Wyoming and Nevada, John knows exactly where I'm going, but those economies are fundamentally different from the Utah economy. In the Wyoming case, they export their tax base through the oil and gas um, exports that they have. Yeah. And of course, in Nevada, it's a gaming industry. They, they depend on their sales tax. We what do, are the odds? We do not have a Las Vegas here that yeah. we can rely on. Hey, let's take a brief break and uh, we'll, have to, we'll talk more local news. I'm Natalie Gochner in the Political Center with uh, Shereen Gorbani and John Dougal. Stay tuned. Shereen Gorbani on the left. John Dougal on the right. Natalie Gochner in the Political Center, and this is both sides of the aisle. We're going to talk about local news, and uh, let's start with the Utah governor's race. Okay. It's an election year. This is going to be an exciting year on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Governor Spencer Cox has at least two significant challengers in Phil Lyman, a legislator from uh, the Blanding area, and Carson Jorgensen, who's the former Utah GOP chair. You know both these people, John. I do. Yeah, yeah tell, tell our listeners they're, they're about them. They're all friends. So, so Phil is a, a, a former county commissioner, San Juan County, uh, current sitting uh, state representative, uh, CPA accountant by background and training, um, and very concerned about uh, where the state's going. Uh, I would describe him as uh, very conservative. Um, and so that's kind of his agenda. He, mm-hmm. he He's concerned that uh, the governor is too too liberal, too woke, too you know, uh, too big government spending, and so that's that's the agenda he's driving. Um, Carson and the governor are both from San Pete County. Um, Carson, Interesting, I did not know that. Uh, Carson ran for Congress a few years back before he became the uh, state party chair. Uh, a wonderful guy. He's a sheep rancher and stuff like that. Very 
very conservative guy, also concerned with the direction where the state is going and stuff. I haven't seen yet his platform and other things like that, but that's what I know about his background. Um, Shereen, how concerned can they be? Um, fastest growing state, one of the strongest economies in the state, and a, a state that still gets things done up on Capitol Hill. I don't know. I find it a little interesting that, that within his own party, they're being critical of Republican leadership, because I think there's been a lot of good things going on. Yeah, I, I find this interesting. I do think that it is, as John is indicating, perhaps for some of those candidates, or definitely one, um, wanting to pull Governor Cox into the culture war issues. And I don't think that serves anybody well. I think these are largely manufactured um, <laughs> problems that are not affecting everyday people. Um, and when we think about I, the opportunity to uh, represent our state, lead our state, I, I feel like we do better when we talk about those things that are going well. And I honestly think it's um, cruel and, and, and a bit of an embarrassment when we talk about the ways in which we've waded into these culture war issues. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I. I, this is, I think, curious, and we'll see how yeah. how our governor reacts. I think, I think, I think he, to be fair, he would say the governor has already taken us into the culture war issues, and we shouldn't be in the middle of a bunch of that stuff. But hmm. you know, uh, Phil Lyman's candidacy doesn't surprise me, and I think it's healthy to have this, you know, competition. I don't, I don't think it's great to just be unopposed, you know, in things. And uh, I think representative persons that's never run for office. <laughs> yeah, and and Shireen. And I know how we've talked about Phil Lyman on this program before because he got a... He's a little surprising. Well, and he got a... Pardon. From Donald Trump. That's right. Yeah, that's not... You don't know. You don't meet someone like that every day. Yeah. He's a smart guy and he's... he's uh, and a really kind. Yeah, he's yeah. engaged with me in some really productive ways. The, the Carson Jorgensen surprised me just because... I don't know. I always thought of the governor as the the lead of the Republican Party in Utah when we have a Republican governor. And so for a GOP chair to take on who I think of as the lead for the Republican Party, I realize he's not the chair anymore, but it, strange. I just I thought that was a little different. Yeah, so. there's there's clearly been some friction between them over the years. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, what's going on with um, these diversity and, statements. And, and before we leave. Yeah. And I think to be fair, Governor Cox is going to tell, look at all the great things we've done and look at where we're going to the, yeah. the point you were just making. Yeah. I will love a, a four more years um, of, of Governor Cox without a an election looming over him. Yeah. Because I think he he's he behaves a little differently in an election year. I, does he? Give, <laughs> give an example. <laughs> I don't know. Just, I mean, they all do. Okay. Hey, uh, diversity statements. Uh, stay, we'll stay with Governor uh, Cox. He was at his monthly news conference, referred to these so-called diversity statements at our institutions of higher learning, said they bordered on evil and forcing people into political framework before they get a job. This has been a little confusing. Have you watched this a little bit, Shereen? I have watched this a little bit. And I, I say confusing because it was like they're doing this and then they say we're not we're doing, not doing it, it. And then they said we're going to get rid of them. And I, I think I can help with that. OK, yeah. Talk but, us through it a little bit. What, yeah. What's really going on? Because you hear well, little tidbits. So. Well, the way to think of it is that to a person in um, higher education, a diverse assigned diversity statement as a condition of your employment, that's one thing. Asking, what, are those what do those statements say? Well, what I don't know. Asking? We don't we do don't, them. Yeah, there isn't <laughs> no, one. There's okay. no university. Okay. What they do do, at least I can speak for the U, is in a, in a minority of cases, it's maybe 20% of the jobs or something, they might ask, hey, you're going to be working with patients. Tell us about your ideas about uh, racial and ethnic inclusion and um, Health equity. belonging, you know, for example. or you're going to be in the gaming 
um, department. You're going to, you know, be working as a faculty member in the gaming, and gaming has a history of some problems in the software, misogyny and different things. Yeah. So, so it's computer games and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, so you might... We're talking about yeah, thanks. Uh, I, Nevada a few moments ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in any case, so you could ask, tell us your thoughts on, on uh, racial... Um, disparities, something. So you're learning more about the candidate, but it's not a signed diversity statement. So this is just uh, people a little bit talking past each other. It's unfortunate. I wish that didn't happen. Uh, So we don't have signed diversity statements, but we do have prompts about diversity and there will no longer be prompts. That's that's really where this the issue settled. Yeah. And I guess I would just invite our listeners to think about when we are asking questions about inclusion and diversity, we're opening the aperture to understand where is this person's life experience coming from? In what ways might that create greater opportunity for students that are coming into our classrooms to be exposed to a framework of ideas, backgrounds, um, you know, pursuits that help people, I think, expand their vision and understanding of the world. The idea here, really at the core of these diversity, equity, and inclusion statements for me, is this notion of inclusion. Diversity exists. We can't decide that diversity mm-hmm, doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That exists. Equity is a choice that we build through policy and frameworks, I believe, right? Inclusion is the act. Mm-hmm. Are we going to be inclusive and say, you with your full experience of life is just as welcome at this table as I am or not? And that is where I think we've gotten really wrapped around the axle on trying to forefront this, like we're forcing people to be diverse. People are diverse. Shireen, would you agree that there can be a lot of overreach? The reason I mention that. <laughs> yeah, I would. Well, I think of some examples. Yes. Well, and I'm meaning, I'm meaning in the EDI movement, right? So in the equity, diversity, inclusion movement, like I think it is possible that you have an ideal and then you overreach. And and so I'm not at all opposed to getting better and to fine tuning and to sure. you know getting where we need to be and and I think state leadership has a lot to offer there in yes. kind of rounding those edges and to learn yeah right? but I don't think yeah. you should be calling and I think the governor regrets it I have not spoken to him but okay. I regret but I think the the notion of calling it bordering on evil it is an inartful in a very strong statement and I and I think it's one thing it, to say misguided right and and a bad policy. But I also think it just really strikes at the heart of something that I'm struggling with with our governor, which is this notion of leading out on this disagree better. We're going to figure out how we're going to talk through difference, Mm -hmm. not not missing each other. It's really frustrating. And Mm -hmm. I, I also feel like, again, we're kind of back to that. Is this just because we're in an election year? Is this because of a lack of real serious reflection on these issues? Why do we have to cast them as evil? Mm. It's a mistake. Well, it feeds into that concept of contempt we've talked so much in the past. Yeah. You know, if if you want to disagree better, you need to avoid contempt. You need to persuade and dialogue yeah. and, and, and all... work through the issues. But, you know, I think this is a good direction. Too often when we talk about, you know, inclusion, okay, I think we want more inclusion, but we tend to then start running down the rail of inclusion means we're going to exclude those folks or minimize those yeah. folks rather than That's how do we That's what I mean by engage. overreach. Yeah. 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 Sure. John, did you see the news, though, that the Wall Street Journal ranked the University of Utah the eighth uh, best public university in the country? It'd be the best in the West. Go Utes. Public university. Yeah, but that's, that's a big yeah. deal. That's, I'm, and that's I'm, a, I'm just curious how that one private university down south ranked. But, yeah, that's that's oh, yeah. great. That's great. No, no, well, what's what I found interesting about it is it wasn't your typical U.S. News and World Report kind of rankings, but it was a really sophisticated look at value. Okay. How much do you pay? Do people graduate? Where do they get placed? What wages do they make? So good, meaningful metrics rather yeah. than these, how many did you reject and, uh, and how much did you charge sure intuition? It would be nice if people in this state would uh, recognize that. I think the hard work that goes into being the 
eighth best public university in the country. I think we're really by a lucky. conservative, you know, news media. I, I believe we're really lucky to have the University of Utah in what feels like my backyard. Um, certainly, you know, here as a really crunchal in our public education, higher education system. And I would just be thrilled, like if my kid wanted to go there. You know, I I, I don't know. I like it. Yeah. Hey, well, got, I have two kids that have gone there, so yeah, you know, there you go. We've got less than uh, two minutes in the program. Uh, John, can you just give us a little bit more um, color commentary on the start of an election year? Start of the election year? Yeah, because uh, you've been going through this personally, and we've got new candidates for the Senate race. We've talked about the governor's race, but all across, I mean, you had to already file by last week, correct? You had to file by um, Monday, uh-huh. Monday, January okay. 8th. Okay. And that was the last day. So, so... Running for election is going to be a difficult thing. Uh, you know, there's lots of excitement, lots of ideas floating out there. People approach it, I describe two different ways. They're going to do whatever it takes to win, or they're going to just lay out there their ideas and let the voters decide. Um, I tell folks, you can't get too personally invested in this. You got to go out there and work your guts out and, and pitch your vision, but you can't take it so personal that it's going to destroy, you know, your sense of who you are. You need to just pitch your message and stuff like that. And, and try and build friends. I've been lucky enough that in my campaigns over the year, most of the folks I've campaigned against, I've become friends with them. Not all, unfortunately, but but most of them. And so I, I view that as beneficial yeah. because then we continue the dialogue after the election. Yeah. Shereen, get ready for the airwaves to be filled with political advertising. That's right. And I also just encourage people to reach out, especially at your local level. We've got a lot of county races. We've got, um, certainly you mentioned state legislature, all of these people have filed now. The One of the best things that you can do is educate yourself about the candidates that are running in your area. And if you see that there's a spot that goes unfilled on the ballot year after year, maybe consider running. Yeah. And don't forget, we got the legislative session starting on Tuesday. And both sides of the aisle will give you some great commentary on that next week. So thanks for joining us, everybody. Shireen Gorbani with uh, John Dougal and Natalie Gochner. We love being together, and we hope you enjoy the program. Thanks so much for listening.